Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, worship team. And kids, you're welcome to run right on out there. Uh, I want to thank, while they're heading out, I want to thank Greg uh, Petersheim for taking last Sunday, as well as Shirley Mast and uh, Derek Slayball for their help. I hope you enjoyed that uh, conversation around labor and Labor Day. Uh, I enjoyed listening to it online later, and uh, it was really, really helpful and meaningful. So thank you to those of you who did that. Uh, well, welcome this morning to part one of a brand new series that we're calling The Lost Art of Friendship. And uh, what I want to do with you in this series is take a deep dive on something that we often just run right by. When I was in graduate school, one of my professors told me that there are going to be courses that I take that I'm going to have to um, water ski and other courses that I should scuba dive. And what he meant by that is, of course, there are some that you just really need to get down into and others you just don't have the capacity or time to really get too far into. And for many of us, the people around us are often the people who are a part of the senior who are kind of with us and are on our way to something else. Like the people we work with help us as we're on our way up the job chain to the next position, to the next thing. The people who are on our team help us as we're trying to accomplish something else. The people in our families are just kind of there and they maybe watch us grow up and encourage us to do whatever. Or the people in church with us, they happen to show up every Sunday, every Wednesday, whenever we show up here and they're just kind of there along for the ride. But taking a moment to pause and do a deep dive in a space where we often just take people for granted and take their role with us for granted is something that I want to do with you over the course of the next nine weeks. And the reasons for that, I want to explain the first couple of minutes here. And so if you can give me at least a couple of minutes to explain why, I hope you'll understand why I think it's worth this amount of time to talk about something called that we're calling friendship that is often so... Um, seemingly simple and maybe something that we don't think about nearly as much as we should. Back last year in 2017, the National Institute on Aging, in conjunction with Michigan State University, conducted a survey, a study, nationwide study, about 271,000 adults. That's a lot of adults in the room, by the way. Imagine that, 270,000 adults. And in that study, administered by Michigan State Psychology Department, they found basically this, that um, adults who have who identify um, having good friends, particularly older adults, continue to display over and over and over again a higher level of functioning and functional ability, if that's a word, higher levels of functioning than those who do not claim to have good friends. In fact, friendship compared to family has a completely different impact on people's health long term. In fact, the study indicated that people who have good friendships has a better functionality, greater strength, greater health than those who simply list family as people they're closest with. Family has a static impact on your health, whereas good friendships has a dynamic relationship there. To take this further, the study also showed that people who have good friendships, and indicated that as much, that they actually, um, when, you, when you flip it the other way, when these friendships turn into um, strained relationships, okay? When the people you used to be close with, you're no longer close with, there's strain, there's tension. When they identify tension in, in a friendship, in a friendship, it was also in correlation with how much chronic illness they experience. So the, the more strain you have in your friendships, the more chronic illness you are likely to experience. Strange correlation, amazing correlation, over the course of 270,000 adults in the United States of America, which means this, not only are good friendships, relationships that make you happier, let me put it this way, good friendships not only make you happier, they also, this study says, make you healthier. <laughs> they also make you healthier, it's very interesting. And so here's what I want to say, that, that I think good friendships actually make you healthier. Not only do they make you healthier, but here's what I think, that good friendships actually will make you 
better at everything that you do. They're going to make you better at everything you do. And the reason for that is good friendships, good friendships, the spaces where you can come into a relationship with someone and let your guard down for a minute. Be yourself. Find a space where you can really relate with, with, without reservation to someone close to you. You can be who you really are in your most unguarded moments. And then, in those moments, when you trust these people, and we're not talking about a boss or a coach or a teacher or whatever, we're talking about your friends. When you can come into an unguarded moment with your friend and your friend can speak loving truth into you, those are the moments when your life is changed. Those are the moments when you listen to what your friend has to say. It was Oscar Wilde who put it this way. He said, friends are those who stab you in the front rather than the back. They, they, they hit you because the reason they can is because you have trusted them to do that. The author of the book of Proverbs says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. So if you step into a space in good intentional friendship, not just acquaintances, not just people who know how many kids you have, where you're going to school, what your favorite sports team is, or what your hobbies are. Those are acquaintances. I'm talking about friendships in which you intentionally engage in conversation, planning, opening up to people who are near to you. You let your hair down. You are yourself. You give yourself an opportunity to be a better husband, a better leader, a better wife, a better student, a better roommate, a better everything. Because good friendships will make you better at everything. You do, because you can't see, and I can't see, the greatest weaknesses in our own lives, but I guarantee you our friends can. And if we trust them, they can help us. Now, if you're not even a Christian, this is just good advice, okay? This is just generally true. This isn't even a Christian thing necessarily, it's just a thing. If you're a Christian in the room, or if you're listening online later and you're a Christian, this goes actually further for you. So the one why I want to talk about friendship for nine weeks is, frankly, I think you're going to be healthier and a better person if you do. Okay, that, again, not even a Christian thing, it's just a thing. I want to go further with Christians in the room. For those who have said, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, like he's my Savior, I believe and I place my faith there. I want to go further with you because it goes further. And here's what I want to say. The quality of our relationships, Christian, the quality of our relationships directly impacts the effectiveness of our message. The quality of our relationships directly affects, directly impacts the effectiveness of our message. In the Christian world, if you call yourself a Christian, the people around you are going to be looking at how you relate to one another, and through you, will be evaluating the message that you hold out. So, the reason this is true is because faith is processed relationally before doctrinally. The reason this is important, the reason this is true, is that you know this is true. People actually look to you and see, well, how, if they don't have any different quality of relationship, why would I want to be a part of what they hold out? They're talking about holding out hope, but they're the most pessimistic people in the room. Wait a minute, they're talking about reconciliation, but they're still angry at their first grade teacher? It's now 45 years later? Now, they're talking about forgiveness, and they can't get over this thing with their in-laws? Like, why would I listen to what they have to say if they can't figure out the relational struggles that they have? Because faith is first processed relationally, and then it's processed doctrinally. And so, Christian, listen, if you're a Christian, you don't have the luxury of developing bad relational habits because it reflects not just on you, but it reflects on the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because people will look at you and be like, wait a minute, you, you call yourself a Christian? And you're not getting along with your sister? You're not getting along with your mom? You're not getting along with your boss? You're critiquing people? Wait, you're passing on the gossip chain? Hold on. But you're, that's what Christians do? I can get that anywhere. I want something different. And so Christian, we don't have the luxury of developing bad relational habits. We have to do a deep dive on the people that we are with. And I'm telling you, if you're not a Christian, it's a good idea to look at friendship because it's going to make you a better person. It's going to make you better at everything you do. But if you are a Christian, not only will it make you healthier, not only will it make you a better person, better leader, better husband, better dad, better mom, better wife, not only that, but also directly impacts the eternal future of people around you. And so when I choose to hold out negative qualities of relationship with you, I am choosing then for those outside of faith to say, I don't really care, I don't really care as much about their eternal future as I do about my grievance that I have with you. So Christian, this is why I think this series is ultimately so important for each one of us. And so I want to do in this series on the lost art of friendship is take nine weeks to look at what in the New Testament is called one another's, okay, one another's. It's one Greek word, but it's in English two words called one another's, and the idea is how do we one another, how do we take care of one another well? It's called the lost art of friendship because I couldn't come up with another title. Actually, the other title that didn't make it off the cutting room floor, you can tell me what you think about that, was this one. I was going to simply call it How to Act Like an Adult. That's what I was going to call this series, truthfully. That, that, had a, that was a leading candidate for a little while because these things are going to require adult responses. Be, the reason for that is what we have to say about one another are so um, hard, they're so difficult, that you're going to need to kind of put on your big boy and big girl pants to kind of get around these ideas and say, wait a minute, can I actually do this? Because this is not going to be simple. It's going to be very unnatural to do the things that we're going to see. Now, the reason I went to the lost art of friendship is because I think keys to relationships have been written down in the pages of scriptures hundreds of years ago, and it's been lost on us because we just haven't done the deep dive. We've water skied right over top of them over and over and over again. I want to pause it and do a deep dive on how did the early church, the early Christians, come together and convene, and how did this movement of the church begin? Because there are qualities of relationships that were expected in the early church, that continue to be our heritage today, that are worth doing a deep dive on, because not only will it make you better at everything you do and everything that you want to do in the future, it will also be a direct tie into the future and the hope of the gospel message worldwide and in our very own community. Okay, So this is why we're doing this series. I hope it will be very helpful for you. Um, we're going to go ahead and turn. I'm going to invite you to turn to our first one another for this morning. And it's going to be in your uh, Bible, in the New Testament, uh, the right two-thirds of your Bible. Uh, the Gospel of John is where we're going to be at this morning. John chapter 13. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, to the right, you can find a, pew, a Bible in the pew near you, and feel free to grab that and go ahead and um, take that Bible if you don't own a Bible. But um, just hang out there in John 13, and then I'll, I'm going to jump into that passage in a second. Just have a couple more things to say, and then we'll, we'll jump right into the passage there. So as you find it, then kind of come back to me for a minute. We had staff meeting this week on Tuesdays at 1 o'clock. We do that as a staff. And with our staff this week, I told them... Um, we talk often about what the message will be upcoming because we kind of process it first as a staff. It's a helpful thing for us to do to kind of get our minds around this. What does this look like for a church staff to actually carry on the things that we say we should be doing? 
this message, this opening message of the series, I sat and I told our staff, I said, honestly, um, there are certain messages where you're tempted to water it down <laughs> because it is such an exceptional idea that I know that I already fall well short of the ideal that I'm about to communicate to you. And I told our staff, I, my inclination is going to be to water this down, to kind of bring this down, to make it a little more palatable, to make it a little less edgy, and to kind of soften that a little bit and lower the standards so it's a little more attainable for everybody. At the end of the message, I want to give you some handles that you can get a hold of and know where to go, but I also don't want to do what my inclination is. Because what Jesus is going to lay out for the early followers of Christianity is such an exceptional, extraordinary ideal that I look at and I think, man, I, I fall so, so short of that. Regardless of that, I'm here to communicate to you, not my standards, but Jesus. So I'm going to do the best I can with my cards on the table with this this morning. Okay? So you're in John 13. We're going to read in a minute to set the stage for what we're going to read uh, about. Jesus is in a room called the Upper Room in the city of Jerusalem with his um, 12 disciples. So the, the 12 disciples are often thought of as a group of people, uh, almost like a basketball team or a soccer team or whatever. They're the Phillies or they're the Eagles or just kind of a team, team, big team. The truth is, I want you to get in the moment for a minute and imagine yourself standing in the corner of the Upper Room for a minute and looking around at the people in the room reclining at the table, eating with Jesus. And each individual has a name. Each person in that room has a story and has a background. And it's very important to understand the context in which the words we're about to read land. And so think about this with me, about who was in the room. If you, if you could look around the room for a minute, you would see two brothers over in the corner. Peter is over there, and his brother Andrew is hanging out next to him. So Peter and Andrew are in the room. And Peter uh, is a very outspoken uh, leader of the Twelve. He's a guy who is not afraid to say what he wants to say and does it without thinking sometimes. Andrew is his brother who um, is passionate spiritually, but more withdrawn and introverted. He doesn't really show up much in the pages of the New Testament. He's kind of living in the shadow of his more outspoken brother, uh, Peter. Andrew was the one who actually introduced uh, Peter to Jesus. And then Andrew just kind of faded into the background of the New Testament. So Peter and Andrew, two brothers, are over there. Peter, by the way, he's the only married guy. He's the only one with a ring on his finger over there in the corner. Okay? Next to him are James and John, and they are two brothers as well. Uh, James and John with Peter make up the three, like the special select three. They're the ones who are the circle of the inner three with Jesus, and they do special things with Jesus. But, but James and John are actually known as the... Get this, get this uh, name. If you would like a name with a brother, how about the Sons of Thunder? Because that's who James and John are known as, Sons of Thunder. They came from wealth, by the way. So you had these people, James and John, walking in the room, brothers. They knew each other, their dad, Zebedee. He had enough uh, of a successful fishing business to have slaves who helped him carry on the business. And so we know that they came from money. And James, John, brothers, John was known um, as the one uh, who Jesus loved. So how about that? And John wrote that about himself. So I'm not sure how you feel about that if you're Peter, 
John, seriously, that's the way you're going to write about yourself? I'm the one that Jesus loved. Okay, that's what he did. And, and John wrote more about love than anyone else. So you have the sons of thunder, passionate, coming from wealth. So James and John are over there. Then you got Philip. Philip is hanging out. He's another one of those quiet disciples. We know almost nothing of Philip, except that he didn't speak up very much. He was a Jew with a Greek name. Nathaniel's in the room. Nathaniel was a guy who, we don't know much about him, but we do know that he's the only disciple we know of who expressed some local prejudice. He's the one who said, have you ever heard this said about Jesus? He said, Jesus is from Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? That's, that's Nathaniel. He's the guy who would, any local prejudices we have about people, about groups, about parts of the city, about parts of our area, about people with certain last names, any of those local prejudices, prejudices Nathaniel is your man, to pass those on. Kind of speak, oh, and then think about that. Oh, that may have not sounded best, but sorry, was that politically incorrect? Whatever. Okay, on to the next thing. Matthew is here, too, in the room. Matthew is a tax collector. And if you know the Bible at all or ever been in church, you know this. The tax collectors are almost the worst of humanity um, in this time period. They were so disrespected and so um, hated by so many people. They had so few friends. There was tax collectors and sinners, and they all hung out together. Um, one of the most despised professions in all of Israel. And there's a tax collector sitting in this room with Jesus, and it's such an intimate and special moment. And then there's Thomas in the room. Thomas is a doubting Thomas. You've ever heard that phrase before, and this comes from Thomas. Thomas is a pessimist. He's the one who doubts that Jesus was even around. He needs to see proof before he does anything. The most critical disciple that we know of. He's in the room. Then James the Less is in the room. He's even more obscure than Philip. Uh, we hardly know anything about him, uh, only that his family is mentioned. And then next to him we have Simon the Zealot. Now, Simon the Zealot, by the way, the Zealot um, tells us that he was part of a political party that believed that military action could win the day. Now, I don't know if you know anything about that today, but we live in a world in which that is not too uncommon. The zealots came from, just a couple hundred years prior, when Jews, actual Jews, rebelled against the Roman army. They actually literally fought and killed people in the name of Yahweh in order to fight and protect their, their uh, territory in their area. And they began this whole lineage of people who came from these great leaders who used guerrilla warfare, literally, to kill people in the name of Yahweh to say, this is the area that is our territory. And they were looked at as heroes, like, this is what God would want, fight, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. The zealots were a part of that deal. So you have Simon the Zealot, who's known as a zealot, who's relating to this political party that, man, you want to fight? I'm in for a fight. We want to fight for God's name. Let's fight for God's name. This is Simon the Zealot. He's in the room as well. And then there's Judas, the son of James, who's next to him. He's actually, that's not Judas Iscariot. He's known as Jude. Don't know much about him. Another quiet guy. He's not like Judas Iscariot, the traitor. This is the reason why you, when you're thinking of... Um, names for your children. You don't name your children Judas Iscariot. Okay, that just doesn't go well. Wait, what's your name? Judas Iscariot. Okay, that's interesting. All right, Because you know that Judas Iscariot is the one who betrayed Jesus. Even if you don't go to church or read your Bible, you just know Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. A betrayer in the room. So in the room are all these people. You have your quiet people, two, three quiet people. Who, and the quiet people are dangerous, right? You know what I mean? Because they're usually right. Like they're thinking about stuff and processing stuff, and the other people are speaking out, and they're usually like getting it right. So you have your three people who are quiet in the room. Then you have people like Peter, an outspoken, charismatic personality in the room. You got the sons of thunder. You got this guy who had randomly let out a prejudicial comment, you know, in the room. You have a tax collector who's sitting in the same room with a, a pessimist who needs to see everything to believe it. And then you have them sitting in the same room with a zealot who's ready to fight for the cause of Yahweh and take over the world that way. And then you have um, a traitor, 
Someone is about to walk out. It's not just 12 disciples in the room. It's 12 very different people with very different backgrounds. And here's what Jesus knows. This is his last week of doing earthly ministry. He's about to leave the planet. He's about to go where they cannot see him anymore. And this is what this means. He's going to leave. He's going to leave the Jesus movement in the hands of these 12 people. These are 12 people who would not show up in a room together otherwise. These are 12 people who are so different. Even just weeks ago, they were arguing. It was James and John's mom who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, excuse me, do you mind when you get to glory and all that glory stuff you're talking about, when you get to the glory and the good stuff later on, can you have, do you mind just, can I reserve the seats right now? Can I have James, one son sit on the right and maybe John, the other one on the left? I mean, I don't care if you do John on the left and whatever, it doesn't matter, but do you mind if we just put one on the right and one on the left? Jesus says, sir, you have no idea what you are asking. The other ten disciples hear about this, and they are, the scripture tells us, indignant toward the other two. Well, sure they are. Wouldn't you be? What gives you the right, James and John? I mean, they're arguing about petty things. Just weeks ago, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And now the greatest thing they're going to have to face is their leader is going to be crucified. And right before that, one of their own, who's on their team, who signed up, who agreed, who came to all the practices, who was, went to orientation, did everything, was with them, who cried with them and prayed with them, Judas Iscariot is pushing his, himself back from the table right now and getting up to leave this room to go do, as Jesus said, Judas, what you need to do, do quickly. He's about to betray them. Not only is he betraying Jesus, he's betraying his other 11 brothers in that circle. And in that space, Jesus knows this is the hands that I'm leaving this entire movement in. And what will I say to them? What will mark this movement when I go? And this is why what Jesus says in that upper room is so incredibly important and marks the early church. If you're in John 13, look with me at John 13, verses 33 to 35. He leans into them and he says, My children, and this is right after Judas walks up and out of the room, My children, which is a loving, tender tone, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then, he says this in verse 34, a new command I give you. Well, this is good. A new command. You're in the upper room. A new command. This is great. I mean, what new command? We're getting the first words from Jesus. We're getting the new command. New command I give you. Then he says three words. Love one another. There's a problem in the room. Jesus, this isn't new at all. You said a new command I give you, and then you said love one another, but the truth is, this isn't new at all. See, in Leviticus 19, we read this in Leviticus 19, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, Jesus, this is Old Testament stuff. This isn't new. A new command I give you. Love one another. And then Jesus clarifies it. Because knowing that this isn't actually new, he clarifies what he means by that. And the next phrase leads into the clarification. Jesus, in what way is this new? He says, as I have loved you, 
so you must love one another. Big question is this, well, how did, how did Jesus love? Because what Jesus is doing in this space, by the way, is he's taking this command to love your neighbor, and in the Old Testament, that love was a command to follow. But in the New Testament, love one another is a person to emulate. And the two are very different things. In the Old Testament, I had regulations. I loved you to a certain degree. There was laws, there was limits. I would do this and do that for you, but I wouldn't have to do the other things for you because that wasn't required in the law because the law was my standard. The law was what I went up against. That was it. Like, I need to just love to that level. If I fulfilled the law, what more do I have to do? Love one another. And Jesus says, this is a new command, love one another. And I know you're sitting there thinking, but this is old. It's in Leviticus, Jesus. Like, I know it's in Leviticus. So let me clarify, as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. Not about the law anymore, it is about how you have seen me love you in the life that I have lived in front of you. Follow me, don't just obey the law. And this is a radically different concept. Because Jesus is a radically different leader, and he's a radically different Messiah. And so he came, and Philippians, Paul in Philippians tells us that he came and he set aside his claim to authority by taking on flesh, becoming a servant, taking on humanity. We read in the New Testament that Jesus came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve. That Jesus came as a servant to all. And just in this room, right before Judas left, just minutes prior to Jesus saying this, he took the wash basin and towel and went around to each of his disciples as the leader of their little group, and he washed each one of their feet with a basin and a towel, and then said just a couple minutes later after Judas pushed back and left, as I have loved you, love one another. And so the question, how did Jesus love? And I'll summarize it this way, in life he served. In life he served. In life he gave all that he had to the service of the people around him, even those who were quote-unquote underneath him. In life he served. He gave everything that he had in service. He asked the question consistently, how can I use my strength to serve those around you? This is the reason that he came. In life he served. And then, it goes further than that, in death he sacrificed. His death wasn't just a natural death. You know this if you know anything about Jesus. He was crucified. He decided, he chose to lay his life down for the people around him, whom, by the way, didn't even yet love him. He decided to die for you and for me. He decided to die for people who were even crucifying him. And so Jesus says, you know the Old Testament law. Come on, everyone knows the Old Testament law, but there's limits to that. You can stop, you can make excuses for it. You can say, but they didn't do their part, so I don't have to do my part. That's written into the law. A new command I give you. Forget that for a minute. A new command. In my life, I've served you with everything I have. And in death, I will die for you. That is how I want you to love one another. That this church movement, that this movement of Jesus followers is marked by people who sit in rows and benches and circles and live in neighborhoods who look at one another because they're Christian first and say, I will die for you because that is what Jesus has done for me. I will serve you in life in every way because that is what Jesus has done for me. This is a radical new concept that is an incredibly, incredibly high, almost unattainable bar. And Jesus says, love one another. 
first because I have loved you, not for any other reason, but because I have loved you. It's a powerful, powerful idea. This new commandment, by the way, this new commandment marks the earliest expression of the church. This defines the church in the earliest stages. This is who the church was, a church that is to love one another in life, serve, and in death, die for one another. This is an unbelievable bond that Jesus laid out for us. In fact, one cannot even enter this new thing called the church and not pass under this banner of love one another. You simply can't do that. You can't enter the church and not come under the love one another banner. Look at the end of the verse in verse 35, what Jesus goes on to say. He says, by this, by loving everyone, all men will know that you are my disciples. In other words, how you relate to one another will help people see that you know me. Your relationships impact their ability to see me. If you love one Another. And this means that the church is not marked by conformity to, but love for one another. In other words, we come together as a church not so that we can all align our political ideas, our moral ideas, our hobbies, our interest groups, not so that we can all have personalities that are the same. We are not conformed to one another. This is not where unity comes from. This is not where friendship comes from, not in the church. The church is not marked by conformity to one another as much as it is marked by love for one another. This is where Jesus began it, in this room of 12 disciples who couldn't be any more different from one another. Political activists, quiet people in the corner over there, people who spoke their mind, the prejudicial comment guy over there, the traitor over here. I mean, the, the church is not marked by, let's all figure out how we can look alike or think alike or just be nice to each other. The church is marked by how do we, despite all of the differences that we have, love one another. That's what Jesus lays out. It is profound. So we are made, the, the church is made up of Christians first and everything else second. When we worship up here and we sing these great songs and you come and you worship, you got people next to you who don't have any interests like yours. They have no interests like yours. They don't golf, they don't bike, they don't hunt, they don't read, they don't scrapbook, they don't like to cook, they don't like to whatever. That doesn't matter. Not for the church. It doesn't matter for, for the church. Because we kneel at the foot of the cross together as people who kneel before the cross first. First, first, first. This is so difficult because it is so unnatural. It is not the natural way that we form relationships. But things are different in the church. Things are different for Jesus' followers. And they were different for the 12 disciples in the room who couldn't have been further different from one another. I love the way Tim Keller reframes friendships. And he put it this way about friendships, and this is what this requires, by the way, this teaching of Jesus, a reframing of friendships. Keller put it this way. He said, see, whenever you find yourself loving somebody because it makes you feel good about yourself, because it's a slick person, or loving somebody because this person is giving a lot of approval, or loving somebody because they're listening to you and they're eating out of your hand, but when this person becomes stupid in your mindset or stops approving of you or becomes actually more of a drain, if you say then, well, I've had it with you, then you never loved them to start with. You loved the love that you were getting. You were using them. If a person who always seems to need you suddenly starts to get strong and you don't want to be their friend anymore, you needed their needing of you. I needed to read that about three times to begin to understand what he's saying. What he's saying is Christian friendship, Christian friendship is traced back to the cross. And it's the decision 
to put ourselves at the foot of the cross and say, the ground is equal here. There is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. We are Christian first. And Christians love one another. <laughs> As Jesus loved us, not even according to the law anymore, but according to the life of Jesus. Not obeying a commandment, but emulating a life. And that life of Jesus served the people who betrayed him. And that life died for people who didn't even like him. And then Jesus says, take that and do likewise. And that's why I told the staff, I don't know if I can do it. And I don't know if I'll feel like a greater hypocrite than when I tell all of us, this is what is laid out for us as the church. But it is. And I'm telling it to you, not because I have nailed it, but because Jesus said it. And I don't want to lower that standard. Love one another. A couple years ago, I heard, maybe last year or two years ago, I heard Andy Stanley, one of Andy Stanley's talks, and he gave a question there that I think it was such a helpful diagnostic question to me that I want to give it to you here to try to get handles on this, this huge concept. The question was, was very simple, but very profound. It's a question that I found myself asking, and that we actually ask as a family here and there too, about how we can take this concept and drive it down into the daily habits of what I do and what you do. And it was simply this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me. So, here's how this works. If you're a parent, and you have children, and they're very young, they're very tiring for you, they're wonderful children, gifts from God, no question about that. But any parent will have parent fatigue along the way if you're a normal human being. What does love require of me as I raise my children? What kind of patience and forgiveness is required? What kind of firmness is required? What does love require of me in this moment as a parent? What kind of reaction do I have? Not just my reaction, gut reaction, but what does a love reaction require of me right now? And that could be very different. It could be a firm stand on this is what needs to be done. I mean, we talk about love being in our home both nurture and admonition. Nurturing, how do I develop a relationship? Admonition, where do we help kind of hold those lines? Both are important. What does love require of me as I nurture and, and work with the heart of my child? And what does admonition look like as I hold a line so that it's a helpful and healthy thing for their future? So what does love require of me as a dad right now? What does love require of me as a, as a spouse? in this moment. What does love require of me as a kid? As I'm thinking about, man, my siblings are so annoying, they're just whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that may be true. Now, what does love require of me as a Christian who has another Christian sibling? What is the loving response in this space? What does love require me to do? Working with a coach, teacher, anyone who's an authority over you, what does love require that you do in response to them? You're working with students, working with employees, CEOs, what does love require of me in this relationship? A simple question, but in every step, when I ask this question, it always makes me stop and consider what in the world is going on. In this space, what does love require of me? Because it requires something. Because this is what the earliest Christians were to do, and this is the groundwork for the movement of the church, that we would be people who loved one another. Can you imagine what it would be like to be on a team of people who would die for you? I mean, seriously. Who would take a bullet for you? 
who aren't just paid like Secret Service to do that, but actually would die for you and love you so much that they'll serve you in any way that they can. This is a ridiculous ideal of the church, that we love each other not because of our interests and our hobbies, but we just love each other because we've come to the cross and we have seen Jesus. And as he loved us, so we love others. And Christians no longer have the luxury of nurturing unhealthy relational habits because it impacts not only your health, but also the message of the entire church, the message of Jesus Christ. We're going to finish this morning with a song that was written, first showed up in the, um, in, in the uh, turn of the 20th century. And I want to invite the worship team to come on up a while. And as the worship team is coming up, I want you to know that this song um, was written by a guy, Charles Gabriel, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, He and I are tight, uh, Charles and I. Charles was actually a farmer from Iowa. And Charles wrote about 7,000 to 8,000 songs. And one of the songs that he wrote is a song that some of you, if you have more history in the church, will know. It's a song that we're about to sing right now. And, And Gabriel wrote this. As he, was, as he stopped and thought about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden that he went to before he died. Um, and in that moment, he was praying so deeply that he sweated blood in that garden. And, and he was thinking about that moment and thinking, this is amazing that Jesus would do this for me. And he opened this song by writing these words, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. And think about that for a moment. Think about standing in the presence of Jesus, who died for you, died for me. And then he went on to say in the next line, not only I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and I wonder, I wonder in that moment of standing in the presence of Jesus, I wonder how he could love me. A sinner, condemned, unclean. Then he says, oh, how marvelous, how wonderful is this love for me. And Jesus says, it is wonderful. Love one another, fellow sinners, fellow unclean people, as I have loved you. Church, love one another. And so if you will, Will you stand with us this morning and be in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene to see again and to sing again this beauty and strength of someone who loved you and loved me that he would die for us.